This is John Stepling, Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number 10, I think, with Molly Klein in New York, Michael Petroselli uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania, or is it Reading, Pennsylvania? I don't know. Reading. Um, hi, Michael. Hi, Molly. Hello. How's it hello. going? <laughs> okay. You? We're having lots of strange, um, slow, slow internet. Yeah. And, and try to record this. Um, we were talking earlier a little bit about House of Cards, so one, I know Molly. Oh right, so yeah, we we all saw that from Bo Willman, who is the so-called creator of the show. He actually just took an English show, a British show, House of Cards, um, starring that fantastic actor, then. Um, um, and turned it into the American House of Cards, which then had, of course, ended with this scandal of what's his name. But it's it's interesting. It always was interesting to me that the the British House of Cards is, was a wonderful show about how, you know, the the fiendish uh, methods that um, um, carry out a, a monstrous national policy, you know, that uh, robs the public and you know, uh, conducts imperialism, et cetera, et cetera, that the, the, it was, you know, a kind of behind the scenes sort of, you know, um, the hallways of power, uh, almost a Spanish right. Right. tragedy type thing, but it was connected their praxis with the policy. And then they remade this for um, American television where you show this kind of, you know, rat maze contest, you know, they're, they're, he's a sort of Caligula figure or whatever, except that the, the government is wonderful. The government right. is nonetheless, all it is is a contest for who gets to, you know, have the credit of, of running the benevolent empire that has an evil enemy in um, the Putin character. And then it's interesting, Petrov, he's called Petrov, which is interesting because that's the name of the, of the guy who, who's, who prevented the nuclear war, right? During the Cuban right. crisis. <laughs> so they, and then at the, the end of the last villain. season, the last season that they did after the scandal, it's interesting where it's, they sort of, and I wonder if this was, you know, the showrunners at the time decided to subvert or whatever, where they seems that the Hillary Clinton character is going to blow up the world and it's Petrov who's the only human being left on, on the planet. That's in the last few shows or whatever. But it still went through this whole thing of, you know, um, you know, glamour or just normalizing the skullduggery and saying it doesn't have any impact on the policies. In fact, they're, they're more and more wonderful. And the character, the Hillary Clinton character, the wife, is, goes has right. this contest with the Greg Kinnear, who's playing uh, Bill Gates' Walton composite. And the thing is, she's against him, and you have no idea why. Like, she's supposedly defending something, well, was, some glorious virtue of the government against, um, you know, the, the super rich, like the, the presidency is immune, to, or it's just under pressure, or... You know, and then they make it's, all this, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th what was interesting, because you're right, the, the, yeah. what was interesting was the, the way that show changed. Because the first season yeah. was marginally closer to the British show. And yeah, you had this convention. It, the, <laughs> the what? I didn't really watch it. I've seen a little of it. But. <laughs> well, but I mean, you yeah. had this device yeah. of Kevin Spacey yeah. talking to the audience, which was right. one of the the conventions in the British show. Right. And they got away from that more and more and kind of made it less and less 
um, significant in terms of story and, and insight. And at the very beginning, it was, it was the audience was to take pleasure in this cynical, almost sociopathic, you know, Southern corrupt politician, avarice, you know, with his avarice and, and, and greed and, and ambition and so forth. Right, he was the right-winger's vision of Bill Clinton, that he, yeah. he actually came from a log cabin or whatever, and that he's a, he was a scumbag. Well, it, it changed dramatically, and I forget yeah. if it was between one and two or season two and three, but it, it made a significant change, and suddenly uh, the Spacey character was no longer evil and horrible and cynical. He was like, oh, he, you know, he was flawed and he was a hustler, but really deep down, he loved America. That was, and I remember sitting watching the yeah. show going, what am I watching? I mean, this is, this is a complete reversal from the first right. season. And then they put right. the, and, the, the writer character in to sort of admire him as a, and then it became, just as we talked before, it like went through those stages where it becomes, it starts off the British show as a critique of the social reproduction, the actual politics of the society. And then it becomes an individualist story just about his challenges in this world, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's really funny to me that he becomes this kind of redeemable character. Um, but, you know, if you remember back to season one, there's the episode where uh, the journalist who he's having an affair with, um, he follows her into this train station and then throws her in front of the DC subway um, because she's threatening to expose him for being the, you know, genuinely right. corrupt, horrifying person that he is. Um, and then by season three, you're expected to forget all of this. And there's yeah. this. Uh, oh, you're just supposed, supposed. You're supposed to be worried that he's going to get caught. Yeah, I mean, it was strange. Throws yeah. Kate Mara in front of the train, but oh, you know, nobody's perfect, right? By season three. Right, and then the right. wife that also murders her we lover. We all commit a war crime once in a while. Yeah. yeah, or that it's yeah, it's supposed to be like, but that's supposed the the justification is that oh, this is the real glimpse when in fact they're not telling any truth about the government. They're just saying there's all kinds of skullduggery that's personal, that's people vying for power. But when they actually make the policy, the policies are all justified. And they even went what they called Israel, the Jordan Valley. They said, there, oh, there's violence in the Jordan Valley. And then, um, you know, yeah, they, they yeah. do things where the, the CIA is then there. They rewrote the whole thing with the... Um, you remember the the submarine, the the Russian submarine? They did, oh, right, you know, right, where they're right. justifying everything, and then it's like, yeah, these motherfuckers are all scumbags personally, but they are the embodiments of the benevolent American empire, which is always right, no matter what, until the very last season, where you feel like, you know, those people were out of the work, and maybe they're like, well, let's what, let's do something, let's say what we know is really going on here. But um, it's the saying you're still rooting for this woman to blow up the world. There was an aesthetic, a sort of style. See, my feeling was yeah. with that show, besides this dramatic change um, that we're noting, um, it seemed to me that, that, you know, you had that opening sequence with a very effective music score in which you see Washington, D.C. at night with no people. There's right. no people, there's traffic, blurred lights, but it's an empty mausoleum. And, um, and it set a certain kind of tone 
for the White House in which, you know, Lady Macbeth, Hillary Clinton, um, Mrs. Sean Penn walks around in stiletto heels, um, even when she's absolutely alone. And it became a kind of strange Vogue photo shoot of some sort. Um, and, and it felt to me like they had a, and this is one of the interesting things that, that Chris Rossi said, right? That shows uh, our, are green lighted according to if they have like provocative images, if there's a, a singular, you know, fingerprint image that they can run with. And, and that's, that's what was clear in this show is they had a image of Washington, how it was supposed to look if it was a Vogue photo shoot. And then everything else was incidental. It was a, a melodrama and, and there was all this, yeah, skullduggery. And it seems like a total CIA show though, even with its history that it sort of flopped and then they kept it going on Netflix, you know, which is the CIA. Netflix is obviously the CIA, right? So this is like, it flopped on some other channel, then they kept it going. The guy, Bill Willman used to work for the Clintons. You know, they took a show that was a kind of, dissident show, a sort of socialist left-wing show from Britain. Right. And they turned it in, they did the fake left thing with it, you know, where it's supposed to be exposing, but it's in fact, you know, just normalizing, you know, it's, it's, it's a normalizing a state of death. I was saying that, you know, the abstract empire is still intact. Right, right. Well, that's clearly what it is. I will digress just a, yeah. a very, because the, the six season of Bosch concluded last night. And the Bosch series is a LA police detective. It's based on Michael Connolly's books of which there are many. And Connolly is a, is a very skilled kind of crime writer. He is. I, I actually like right. Connolly. He's always been pretty much reactionary, but not in an aggressive, overt way. And the character in the books, Harry Bosch, um, is a morally complex, tortured kind of loner outsider who doesn't get along with anybody else in the police department. And people are always trying to get rid of him and the bureaucracy at City Hall and on and on and on. And Conley knows very well the world of LA right. uh, city politics. But this is, this is season six. Eric Overmeyer is the writer. Right. And, and Overmeyer came to the taper when I was at the taper too. We were like exactly the same age. And, and he became kind of the golden boy. <laughs> I became right. the, not, the not golden boy. Um, but he went on to television. He found a, he, he did um, St. Elsewhere. Yeah. He made a yeah. fortune off St. Yeah. Elsewhere. So he never had to work again, but sadly he keeps working. And uh, he wrote the Bosch thing. And um, Bosch in the TV show with every passing season becomes more and more dirty Harry. I mean, he is no longer Sam Spade and a tortured, haunted, um, you know, uh, a man with moral dilemmas. He is just an overt sadistic fascist and an asshole. I mean, he's an asshole to everybody. And his daughter, which may be one of the all-time casting mistakes in the history of television. Um, this woman who plays his daughter um, aspires to be um, um, a public defender, defense attorney. She wants to work with the Innocence Project. And the whole last season is an attack on the Innocence Project. Oh, and she's, she's interning with these people. 
who are sort of, you know, working to get guys acquitted through DNA and prove and they get restitution and stuff. And this Harry, new Harry Bosch character is going, I don't think that's right. Um, you know, she goes, but, but the man's innocent. Well, it doesn't matter. And I'm thinking, what? This is, you know, and at the very end, the daughter, the very last scene of the whole season, yeah. the daughter says, you know, pop, dad, I've changed my mind. I don't want to be a defense attorney. I want to be a prosecutor. Really? You know, oh, of course, because everyone knows that you see innocent people be put to death, and then your immediate response is, ah, I want to do that too. But that's exactly it's what it's amazing. Yeah. Like, they're just all out there. Well, I think that these, you know, like the old networks, I mean, as bad as they were, like, there was, you know, whatever, they were definitely all about um, those selling um, audience, right? So they were, they always had to have a populism in them. Yes. And that's why, you know, they, they could be destroyed by these new things. Amazon, it's Amazon and Netflix, right? That don't give a fuck if anyone's watching. I mean, they don't, they don't need to get a, a mass audience. They need to indoctrinate a small audience. That's how their business model is different. So they can indoctrinate a small audience. So they don't have to be populist. It can just be pure fascism over and over and over, unadulterated. Right. Whereas fascism in the old network world, the three networks, there was no place for fascism because the public doesn't like it. The public right. likes populism. Right. The public so is so popular. This is going to be a, prevail. That's what they want. This is going to be a weird comparison for a second. <laughs> yeah. But, um, season one, Botch, when he was still, yeah. you know, like a, a generally all right kind of person. You know, he's an LA cop, but like. Yeah. he's trying to do the right thing he's in tough positions and he's just trying to get through his right. day and right. like really you know the bureaucracy is bad the politicians are the enemy city hall's trying to fuck you and you know it's it's kind of honest um but he reminds me of um like the original the old x-files shows mm. um Mulder and scully where like you know uh Mulder's this outsider and he's uh, very much alienated, but he knows the government is keeping things from people and he feels like it's his moral responsibility to make sure that people have information that they deserve. Um, right, and, it's a know, classic function in popular fiction. Right, right, and you know, Scully is the there to question things, but she's also at times a double agent for the CIA against Mulder and you know, and she realizes like, oh, hey, the CIA is actually super evil and trying to fuck us both over. It's, and you know, it, and then well, all of a sudden Bosch turns into, uh, you know, a Marvel yeah. character. Well, they, the, one, si one sidebar yeah. that, I'm yeah. sorry, one yeah. sidebar I have to mention beca because this is yeah. like the film school professor wonky bitch yeah. complaint thing. But the laziness in the tech, certain technical details in the Bosch, this is kind of shit that drives me crazy. This was the worst sound editing ever that I've heard. The same telephone <laughs> rang the, in the background of the police station, every, and I mean literally every single scene. The pitch didn't change, the distance from the speaker in, in the background, it was yeah. the same loop. Well, over you know, the thing is they had they got cheaper and cheaper because nobody fucking watches these things. They are very narrowly targeted because they can't be popular. They're so offensive 
that yeah. nobody wants to see them. So, but they are for a neat, they're for niches. They're for, you know, us basically, they're for the, the niche that will spread the word, you know, that they need to cultivate to have a, pa a fascist personality and a fascist worldview so that we will spread it, you know, um, down, it'll, it'll trickle down on people because we're active in the public uh, discourse, you know, well, there's so a, there's a, yeah, it's like the Twin Peaks, you know, it's like Twin Peaks, like literally had the lowest ratings of any show ever, but like half of what the low next lowest. And right. it was kept on because they felt that it was cultivating the fascism of a key, you know, and, and, the, right. and the Toyota and the well, luxury cars, Mercedes Benz helped keep that show on by buying time, even well, though it wasn't worth it, because they wanted to reach those Columbia professors. Right. Well, it's interesting that there's a kind of a schizophrenia or, or, or bipolar quality to shows like Bosch, too, that, that, that comes out of a certain laziness. I mean, yeah, because you're right. It's not a high-rated show, and it's season six. It's a franchise for, I don't know if it's Amazon Prime. It's or Amazon, yeah. It's Amazon. But, um, but it's that character, the, yeah. the, the Titus Welliver playing Bosch, who yeah. is really miscast, is in the books, Bosch is a jazz aficionado. He loves jazz and he, and in the show, weirdly, he's always playing like Lee Connitz and, and all these white guys, Jerry Mulligan. David and, Brubeck and, takes five. And, the, and Titus Welliver is a very cultured person, you know, son of Neil Welliver, the painter. He's very, uh, he's certainly cultured enough to know about jazz. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> Why would that be that he was, I don't know, I haven't very seen strange. it. strange. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was, but it, but that creates this kind of weird, um, it's like cultural schizophrenia or something. Yeah. Um, because there's, there's, there's a, these cognitive, you know, problems and oh i don't know it's just the, the stuff that bothers me are like bosch is at home in his t-shirt on his day off and it's a brand new t-shirt these kind of right. details drive me crazy it's like because there's no money there's no money. Design, they you know? spend no money on this stuff i mean it's like i mean I know, they t money. From home, though. <laughs> I know like let him wear his own clothes i remember when i was working in um, in Italy one summer on a movie they had all the actors wearing their own clothes famous actors you know yeah. it's like they, they and uh, it was um, Lena Wertmuller and she was like well you know they feel better in their own clothes <laughs> <laughs> like you know that's probably true she's like look at them they act normally in their own clothes but well, this all kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier Molly where yeah um, <laughs> Stories are being dumbed down constantly. Uh, they have to be yeah. rapid fire. They have to be action. Um, I mentioned earlier that I was thinking about Rafifi, and you know, Rafifi is oh, one yeah. of the greatest heist movies of all time. Um, but there's Comedy this movie scene. by a communist, made by a communist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's this scene where it's thirty minutes of near absolute silence. Yeah, silence. While they're doing the heist, um, there's no yeah. dialogue, there's yeah. no music, and you can hear everything everyone is doing, and it creates this very real tension. But it's right. 30 minutes of silence, and you know, there's 
like there's action happening on screen but oh it's, it but is... it's totally tense because you because the thing is it's realistic so you know you all the threats are there you know you know that if they drop that that stuff instead of using the umbrella to catch the cement that they're going to get caught and everything makes right. sense you know exactly yeah. where you are in the in it it you are there you know you are there in a realistic atmosphere so you feel this suspense i don't but think it's boring at all and it's one of the things that Uncut Gems did very well Uncut from the Gems, opposite yeah. end, um, where, you know, the, the tension was palpable. It was, Absolutely. you know, you, that was Adam Sandler needs his next score. He needs to win. He needs to hit. He's got to get his next score. He's got to get his next score. He's got to get his next score. And then all of a sudden things are going wrong. He lost. He lost. Fuck. What do we, what do, we do? What do we do? He won, but his brother-in-law canceled the bet. So now what does he do? And, you know, he's... He's always it's a great that's a great movie in that yes he keeps he's the player in capitalism he does everything right but he still can't win they still are gonna take it away exactly. yeah and it's exactly. a it's really a wonderful that's that movie is a perfect allegory it is it is and it's but it's interesting joe nava i mentioned this yeah. to michael the other day um, uh, Joe Nava wrote me a, a nice note. He's a fan of the podcast. I should have Joe Nava on. Yeah, we should have him on. But he had seen back to back um, Antonioni's La Ventura mm. and Godard's Contempt, and he was making these interesting comparisons between them. And so I'm listening to you guys talk about Rafifi, and because I was thinking about both Contempt and, and La Ventura, and how so much of what is compelling or or um enchant the enchantment of those two whatever you want to talk about is gone today i mean those are really perfect examples of you know, the architecture of um emotional deadness or something in la ventura that is you know overcome i mean there's all kinds of allegorical um registers in which to look at that and Contempt is the same, except it was kind of Godard trolling um, Hollywood in a sense, but, but, and it was shot at that cuckoo villa out overlooking um, the Mediterranean, I guess. And um, it has no plot and it has no story. I mean, this is all very vague and strange and silly in this kind of Godardian way. Um, but a number of people have written me which me about it recently, which means it's prob there's probably a new criterion, you know, release of it or something. Um, but but the element of presence that you talk about in Rafifi is there in both those films in very different ways. And it's, right. it's, it's something that, I mean, Joe mentioned, oh, it should have been Anna Karina and not Bardot. And I said, no, 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 Bardot is like the brutalist building, you know. You worship Bardo, but you don't want to fuck her because it's, she's not that. It, everybody falls in love with Anna Karina. You can't <laughs> help it. And but, but you don't fall in love yeah. with Bardo. You're just you're just strangely in you know you worship her tits or something, but you don't want to touch her. I mean, and that was kind of the the point of of the the casting in fact. And, right. And um, but that's the sort of and Monica Vitti in in La Ventura is again. I mean, a shot after shot of Monica Vitti thinking you know, and, and you're wondering what's going on and who is thinking what. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is just absent now. I'm, I'm struck with how much is achieved by absolute shorthand and style cue. And back to House of Cards, um, um, Robin Wright Penn, who I just, 
loathe with a completely irrational intensity. And I admit it. I don't know what it is. But, um, but she is a Shiksa goddess for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, she just, yeah. And it's, and there's something, she just radiates smugness and you just can't escape the fact she probably actually thinks she's good, you know, at what yeah. she's doing. Yeah, and she directed um, But anyway, there, that, you know, you compare Robin Wright Penn with Monica Vitti. There's my comparison, you know. And that that's my allegory for what has happened to um to human faces and, and Yeah, it's and, true. Monica Vitti, she's like a she's perfect and yet um there's she's tremendously vulnerable. Right. She's and, vulnerable. She's and she does have the lights and, on in yeah, her eyes. Just, she's not got doesn't have that dumb dog look. The two movies are in many ways like two sides of a coin. Like, you know, they're both alienation films. They're both um, have this strange existentialist bent to them where nothing is really happening, but you get the feeling that something important is happening anyway. And they handle it very differently. So like Anna disappearing is obviously the major event. Um, and so that's one side of the coin is, you know, sometimes there's a major event that causes these deep existential crises that seem to come from nowhere. Um, and the other side of it is that as soon as we get to contempt, it's, well, there's no major event. Nothing, nothing big happens. Right. He, tells, he tells Bridget Bardot to get in the car with uh, what's a Prakash, and um, he shows up late, and he's always running. Paul's always behind. He's, he's the man who is perpetually <laughs> behind everything that's happening. He's 30 minutes late, and then he's late again he's always just running after things and never really catching up um whereas in la ventura they're always right there but there's this yeah. there's a very real separation between everyone the whole time and i think house of cards did that well in the beginning when they would have kevin spacey look at the camera and you know well hello and i'm here to tell you about what's going to happen now and right. like Right. I'm here to tell you about my plan to get the governor of Pennsylvania, who's a recovering alcoholic, to go back to drinking and then kill himself. And like he says it so calmly, and you're like, oh wow, that's kind of jarring. Um, and, <laughs> but you know, you can't do that in film or TV anymore, and it's kind of a shame because now you uh, you have to tell stories for children. Well, that's yeah, the thing. Well, like, but I mean, that, a, yeah, sorry. Yeah, a script like I, I mean, a film like obviously La Ventura would never get made today. I mean, you can't, you can't bring in those scripts. But I'm kind of interested in, I mean, we're sitting here still amidst the quarantine, you know, and, and Norwegian schools open on Monday. Um, and there's a lot of debate, people debate about it here. Sweden's right next door, you know, who didn't do much of anything by way of, of social restrictions and and you know they've had more deaths but not more infections but you get a constant stream of misinformation from everybody i've never seen anything in which more contradictory facts um were released by you know official institutions absolutely uh, it's depending on completely post-rational audience and it's yeah. not it's not the most people i mean still it might we went to flushing meadow park nobody's in a mask kids are playing soccer they don't believe it and in the neighborhood even the the little businesses are trying to reopen they they're behaving with the plastic over their heads and everything but they're trying to like 
continue going. Nobody believes in this thing, but there is a segment of this society that is the fucking brown shirts, and they will do anything. Yeah. They want to have pogroms, like, if, and everything is about Trump for them. Like, if Trump said, and I noticed this today, Vanity Fair has an ad for itself that is just what Trump said about them. It says, "Subscribe to third-rate fake news," and then it quotes Trump saying they're third-rate fake garbage. And, and that's the ad. That's all they have to say about themselves is support us because Trump doesn't like us. And I really believe if Trump got on television tomorrow and said, I changed my mind. I think the immigrants in this country are great. Let the kids go out and play that the white hipsters in my neighborhood would go out and kick them to death in the street. Right. They would absolutely, yeah. they do not care about anything except their game with Trump. They're mesmerized yeah. by him. It's the only show they watch. They're the, they think he's all powerful. They keep wanting, they keep saying, evoke the DPA, which gives him unilateral despotic control of the treasury and the right to call Americans to work, to force Americans to force labor. They, like he has to, he has to evoke this. Um, at the same time that they say they don't like him. It's just like during Syria, like when they said, oh, Trump doesn't have the right to be the president of the United States, but he should be the despotic ruler of every other country on earth. Right. And that he's, he's refusing to despotically rule Ukraine and, and Syria. Therefore, that's his malfeasance. Well, you see, know, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. I really want these people at the bottom of the sea. No, it is astonishing. I'm, I'm, and I've run into, you know, really people I thought of as, as pretty smart who, who, you know, um, who are fearful and think, no, you know, this could be very serious and blah, blah, blah. But just to go back to you talking about a post rational audience. Yeah. The, the audience for the COVID-19 narrative is post rationalist. And that's the same audience that, watches a lot of Hollywood product now without noticing the internal contradictions and incompleteness and, and truncated, you know, development. They've absolutely been trained by this stuff. They have been trained out of rationality, out of, and, and all their politics, their impulses, the brand cues that are so attenuated now, they're so little, you know, you just have to flash one little cue about whether this is red state or blue state, whether this is NASCAR or NPR, and they respond. Right. Like right. Right. Pavlov's, and it is Pavlov who really knew. <laughs> Seriously. You know, that's unbelievable. What, yeah. But that's what Chris Rossi said the other day in yeah. the thing. I mean, he was quite right, you know, yeah. that if you look at Dick Wolf's shows, Law oh, yeah. and Order has that ka-chang right, sound right. cue that begins every and it's a right. Pavlovian, you know, wake right. up. Oh, oh, this is, you know. Right. And then it says, this is a consequence. This is the natural consequence of what just came before. That's what it's telling yes. you. If you let these guys and it, and then it translates into the fakery of the Bosch that you were just describing. It translates into, you know, if you go to Chung, that means that if you let this innocent man out of jail, that, um, you know, your daughter's going to be raped and murdered. Yeah. No, but it's true. It's, it's really true. Here's fate. It's like uh, the hand of fate. The hand of fate has appeared and we know we're going to get that. And it's just like rats in the maze that know if they touch this button, they're, they're going to get the um, sugar. Yeah, it's strange. It's, it's strange. I mean, you could, somebody on 
one social media the other day, some sort of cyber friend of mine was was talking about certain things that seem to crop up in in you know Hollywood product these days. And but one thing struck me, and that is that 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 rats in a maze kind of thing, and that and that not being able to follow the story is okay. I mean, there are right. characters who don't follow the story, but they turn out okay. Right, because... you just, yeah, you, you make Whoa. a choice in the moment. There's no time, there's no, and, and actually John Berger said that, and uh, Jake just read it to me today, that the totalitarian, totalitarian projects and class projects and authoritarian projects of the, you know, ruling class aggression, like a number one thing, you know, a big priority for them is erasing it, people's sense of time. And that's what prisons are about, the whole prison project, which is not, you know, you could read Jules Velez, who was a, a wonderful writer and was also a communard from the 19th century, talking about being put in prison for a couple months and he says you know uh, we heard while we were there that Americans are actually there that in the United States they lock people up in solitary confinement and they <laughs> they couldn't fucking believe that that happened for like a year they're like they, how can that be you know and right. talking about his experience of being held in a cell and only being able to to call to people outside you know for a couple of uh, two months and how Unre you know how it's beyond imagining it's beyond the moral universe that they live in and now this is a common thing right you have this massive yeah. number of people in our society who have survived that you know like um uh, we have a comrade right that it was 20 years in a in a yeah. supermax prison no i was talking with lex's group justice and dignity yeah. a guy when i was in la i met who did 15 years in solitary and he was innocent, you know. I mean, he yeah. was eventually acquitted. Um, no, that's it's it's a really um, very very uh, you know Aldous Huxley kind of vision, uh, yeah. nightmarish vision out there, and, and destroying and, the time, the sense of time. They do it not. That's the extreme example. But then you know, there's a lot of people in society who have that trauma, and then you know, the television, the screens, like it really does destroy your very basic rationality like how to boil an egg you know like how I mean, to go from one thing to another over time and that you get better at things that everything seems impossible to when you yes. talk to these people who hate trump they think the only thing that could happen is he he is someone uh, assassinates him or he's if he's if we win in this one contest this election that that's going to solve everything they have no sense of accomplishing difficult things in concert that take time, that you have to build consciousness, that you have to build strategies, that, but that you get better at things. They believe that you either have these inborn capacities, you know, just like they believe you can't be cured of depression or you can't be cured of bipolar or all right. these um, right. Yeah. So I have, a, I have a bipolar one diagnosis. Um, on the other hand, um, people, I talk about revolutionary discipline a lot because the discipline that I learned from observing and watching communists trained me to solve problems for myself. Right. And so, you know, when I didn't have health insurance, you don't have the option to fucking not take pills. Um, or when That's they try good. to prescribe you lithium, um, you know, what do you do? Um, but I found that if I had a set sleep schedule, if I made sure I was doing certain mm. things every day, if I went over and sat down at my computer and tried to do 30 minutes of studying 
like, yeah, I might not study the thing that I sat down to, but I'm probably going to accomplish something eventually. Like if I do it every day, eventually I'll get something done. Um, and like people don't realize like you can discipline yourself to do anything. And, you know, it goes back to what Brecht said about truth. Uh, the difference between uh, when, when we speak truly, if we say that someone is disciplined because they do what they're told to, that's not discipline, it's obedience. Right. And to use the word, to use the word discipline when you mean obedient, there's dignity in discipline. There's not dignity in being obedient like a dog. And this is all social. And it's like, you know, they, in schizophrenia, they believe it's incurable in the United States. They just want to give you a drug to control you. And, uh, you know, that's very profitable. And then, you know, they have in Sweden, I think, and, and in a lot of the Scandinavian countries, they have treatments for schizophrenia where you get together with everyone who knows you, everyone who talks to you, you know, the merchants that you buy your bread from, the school teachers, da, 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 and they tell you their impressions of you so that you can put yourself back together so that you could get, you get your bearings again. And yeah. they have enormous success with this. This is not to say there aren't some people who are so traumatized, so damaged, whatever, that they don't need uh, other kinds of help. But the, all of this stuff is hugely overblown and hugely is wrongly treated. I mean, the drugs are just mechanisms of control. The diagnoses right. are everywhere. I mean, I've been offered antidepressants in my life and I was never depressed I, in my whole life. I mean, until I got very sick like 10 years ago and that lasted for like two years, but I had no idea what depression was like before that. I had, I never was depressed. And I, you would go to a gynecologist and as you were leaving, they would say, Oh, would you want some Prozac? Like, <laughs> coffee cup on their desk where they went on a Prozac holiday to Bermuda. Like to this day, I still have swings, but on the other hand, yeah. um, I know how to manage a depressive episode. I go outside and fucking talk to people because it makes me feel better and it normalizes well, me. And if right. you can put yourself in other people's view, it helps because right. other people are generally kind of irrational about most shit. Right, and they hold you to yourself, you know, because we all, when we're all, any of us who are isolated will go crazy. Well, this what... brings us back to COVID-19, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the fact that I take my kids to school tomorrow, preschool, you know, the twins, three and a half years old, but I have to drop them at the gate. They can only play in groups of like three or four kids. The whole point of getting the twins socialized, taking them to preschool was they could spend time with kids besides each other. You know, They're, they've been together since the womb, since inception. But now there's only going to be one other kid with them at any time. And none of this makes any sense. I mean, none of it makes any sense. No. But, but what the kids are going to learn from this is um, that surveillance is okay, is normal. Parents' social distance, alienation is built into like, you know, the, the human existence and, um, and that somehow uh, sensuality and touch and connectedness is suspect. And dangerous. It's like what, if you look at what happened to all the kids who had not yet hit puberty or were just hitting puberty in the AIDS crisis, I mean, they got seriously socially, politically, sexually fucked up. And they yeah, never became normal. They never 
they never it was ne it's not reparable those kinds of traumas at that age are not reparable i saw someone on twitter the other day say that uh when they were listening to the radio in their car they live in portland uh, they said that every time you leave your house, you kill five people. <laughs> like, what the fuck does that even mean? But yeah. see, but this is this is what's so fascinating to me. But because that's exactly the I mean, if you go to social media and you listen to people talk about this, this babbling, incoherent, junk science parroting of information, data, misinformation, statistics that they have no understanding of it's it you you eventually these people will say things that are patently irrational literally irrational and they love uh, them just the way they love the batman or joker or whatever they love these stories yeah and so the the covid thing is i mean paul Hader, who i'm a big fan of um who works with homeless people and he does a lot of social welfare stuff up in the Pacific Northwest. And Paul was on social media the other day and he listed all the, how many people died of hunger, how many people died of, you know, um, uh, li living on the street from Suicides. You know, cold or frostbite or anything, food insecurity, the number of people dead from malaria. From, he had this whole list. He said, and of course the numbers are gigantic, right? Yeah. Staggering numbers. And, and yet, they've never been presented to the public in any kind of frame that resembles the COVID frame, right? Right, like Which that's anything, any, yeah, any inconvenience. Science fiction movie. Yeah, and, and that just, any it, inconvenience to them, no inconvenience at all. I mean, would, you know, nothing, they, nothing can be asked of them in order to lower these numbers. Right, there's nothing that can be done. They just, they happen. Or it would be an effrontery, you know, the thing is, you know, if you say, well, if we actually cut your interest rate, you know, of your investments by 0.0%, you could lower it by this much. And they're like, no, no, it's not fair. No, no, we're not right. going to, you can't not, you can't take our money away, like in order for people to live. Um, well, so I guess this week there were some notorious comments made on some other podcasts um, where somebody decided to say that food, not bombs doesn't do anything that they're, they're not building power. Like, I'm sure we're all aware that, like, you know, having a podcast by itself is not inherently revolutionary. On the other hand, you know, going out and protesting nuclear sites and feeding the homeless is going to accomplish a hell of a lot more. Yeah, what is <laughs> so, this know. idea of what, what their idea of revolutionary is exactly what? Like, this is the same infantilism. It's like, um, okay, so God's hand comes down and, um, you know, or at the end of some movie, you know, the... Well, you can have for Bernie and well, then... Or, well, yeah, or just, you know, the, the thing is that it, you have to, all these things are revolutionary. Like, you know, the survival of the working class is revolutionary, especially, and the protecting the, um, what we have is revolutionary. Well, I right. think what's and interesting is just I'm sort of slightly off topic, but is in relationship to this kind of the, the narrative that has been posed on imposed on the pandemic um, is that is that of um, of the, the role of the expert and of authority and of institutional authority and legitimacy um, these these are definitions that that seem now to be um, 
to have no, they're not, they're not based on anything that anybody could explain to you, you know, right, like Bill I mean, because Gates. you have Bill Gates with no medical training or knowledge or yeah. anything who is like the emperor of health now somehow. Right. You know? And like they want to talk about like moral hazard or, or conflict of interest. And yet, yeah, Bill Gates is presented it's just, as it's authority. Just, it's just a pure, yeah. because he's a winner, because he's the winner. He's yeah. one. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, that's very strange. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to go back very briefly to to, to that idea of um, uh, that that Joe Nava introduced when he's talking about those two films. Because this is at some point we should we should have a podcast about strictly films we like. Because I'm I'm getting emails from people who are in quarantine, you know, everybody's kind of in lockdown, they're staying home, and they're watching movies. And there's a few people are actually reading. And um, a good friend of mine who's a, a screenwriter watched all of Berlin Alexander plots the other weekend. Oh, that, yeah, we you should know, talk about that. I haven't seen that in a long time. No, me either. And, and um, it's a remarkable film, you know, I mean, it's it it just TV, remarkable. Right? It was TV. Yeah, it was made for German TV in I yeah. guess twelve hours in total, um, and and just an extraordinary. I mean, it, again, trying to imagine that today is all but impossible. That, by virtue of its form, in a sense, um, which I mean is just, I mean, is Fassbender. You know, Fassbender was yeah. inherently like subversive in his thinking somehow that's a strangely disruptive film to watch all 12 hours of and it's shot in you know with a lot of strange long shots and then you know unexpected edits and the rhythm is very strange and and also disruptive it's a it's not a comforting film to watch in that sense um it is something that i cannot imagine at all today existing on television no, uh, although it's interesting that I don't that's even exactly. Know, I have no more. I have no more conclusion to that, except that it's 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 extraordinarily hard um, to fathom a, a product like you know a, a work of art like that um, existing today because that's that's where we are. We are in, you know, the the time of of Bosch and and. Um, House of Cards and The Affair and all of these shows that are um, are genuinely subliterate and and infantile. Um, but the, it's that's and just not well made. Of, that's the yeah, other thing. Then, but there, that's but um, Berlin Alexander Platz and Fassbender, just the kind of stuff that's been stripped for parts, right? To make these crappy fascist yeah. things, like people have taken this stuff like that and 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 attenuated it and distilled it into certain kinds of signals of legitimacy or edginess or something and then mixed it in with you know totally fascist mythical crazy um you know stuff from advertising basically like sachism and then you know sold it as um edgy you know right sold it back right, to you right. as the fassbinder of today Tar tarantino did that so. Yeah, no, and and yeah, it's um, it's interesting the the different ways one can talk about. I was you know writing, what was I writing? Something 
about the evolution of big screen, widescreen, Panavision, VistaVision. Oh, it was in the last blog post about Disney animating all the widescreen stuff. And the way that evolved was to people like Christopher Nolan and, and other pretentious wank that, that yeah. mentioned with him in the adaptation of that Pinchon book. Oh, um, anyway. Anderson? Yeah, Paul Michael Anderson, who I think is, is a lot more interesting, but still basically a, a kind of inferior thinker, at the, the, to be generous. But, Very fast. But what they did is they shoot they shoot like in 70 millimeter, they shoot these ex extraordinarily expensive processes um, for no discernible reason, you know? I mean, right. I don't see the significance of that on the screen, you know? Um, if, if Kubrick was spending a lot of money at the time in 2001, at least when you saw it, you understood where the money went, that that was, there was some equation in, in, um, in space exploration and the future and capital and, uh, but now it's just, I'm gonna build the biggest Ferris wheel and no, I'm going to, and, yeah, and, and I don't just, know, I mean. And boy, and it's, well, um, Jake always says there, there are some filmmakers who have been a lot better when they're on a budget, like Fellini, you know, that, yeah. and Fassbender is one, right, he, in his lower budget things, like are really written brilliantly and acted brilliantly. And, and the, you know, part of it is just this, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they're just not practicing any kind of storytelling or whatever i mean it's storytelling in the in the degraded advertising sense yeah i mean it all yeah. doesn't it all kind well, of go back to star wars like it's all very much similar to the way star wars is developed where there's no real plot there's no character development uh things just happen well star um, wars was the signal event for for hollywood i mean that was hmm. the fulcrum I and mean, we've talked and about then bringing that in the man yeah, with I a mean, thousand faces formula it was you know the 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 legacy of star wars is joss whedon and those people jj yeah. abrams oh, i mean it really is that seems like an odd thing to say at, in a sense but that's you know I mean, yeah. even Buffy, which you have this great take on, is 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 the, is you know the grandchild of Star Wars because Absolutely. what Star Wars shut down was Sorcerer and Point Blank and independent and yeah. genre filmmaking, you know, which at least had the virtue at the very least because I think a lot of it's rather extraordinary. I mean, and that's what all this stuff does, right? There's a certain calculation in Hollywood that there to grab it and hold attention for as long as you, I mean, it has no, no connection at all anymore to, to the way all of us and earlier, you know, generations spoke of art. It has no relationship to art or culture at all. It doesn't or do even even Or even uh, soap operas, even, you know, um, popular forms that people have argued about, you know, their aesthetic values, but it had obvious um, social success, you know, social meaning and, you know, it, 
you know, Feuilleton or something. They don't, they don't have that. I mean, you were talking about um, the, the magic, the return of sorcery and magic and supernaturalism and all this. There's this uh, Neil Gaiman show. And he, I, I really think Neil Gaiman is one of the worst influences ever. And he was hugely successful because what he does is just make sort of paper doll versions of all kinds of popular material and infantile right. versions, right? So that he's got, there's a show called um, Good Omens that's about two, a good angel and a bad angel. And it's just all stereotypes and all winking and all, it's so dumb. And, right. and right. It's, it's for kids, I guess. It's Amazon, it's for children. And yet it, you know, it's supposed to have this, I don't know, but it, this is the sensibility now that you can just throw, um, you know, the reminders, little, like you're giving everyone a lunchbox that has the Brady Bunch on it to make them feel, you know, remember their childhood. And that's it. That's what the television show is. It's selling you a Pretty little doll. Much, yeah, yeah. Well, you're not allowed to be serious in the way somebody like Fassbender was serious um, or Antonioni for that matter or Bertolucci or any of them. I mean, you, you can't do that anymore. And, and the stuff that's awarded, you know, prizes and, and prestige recognition um, from the industry that's validated officially, um, that stuff is never serious. It's, no. um, it's snark now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's either ironic or, and it's almost impossible for for works today to not be ironic. It's it's, you know, this is becomes a very big discussion yeah. because it's about degraded language and and about a kind of image virus that affects everything. And it's not just CGI. I mean, CGI is a huge part of it, but but it is it is a certain. Um, the people that make it, the technicians, the directors, the I mean, these people are all indoctrinated and trained too. They, they, I mean, you can go to, um, I mean, among adults, a, a thing circulated, name your favorite ending to a movie, right? right? And there were hundreds of answers and people of all ages in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 20s, 30s, there was almost no film mentioned Oh, I lost you. I mean, it, it's just oh. culture of absolute oh, yeah. amnesia. Nobody... Amnesia. And then they don't, everybody loves these little listicles, right? That's what they, they want a listicle. Like the only kind of entertainment is a listicle of your favorite things from right. whatever. Like right. that. And that, that's the form of the entertain, the form of the movie. Everything is in Well, writing listicles is journalism. It's journalism, the li and this is why people, the, these disturbed people with their COVID, they love these little instructions, how to wash your hands. I mean, oh my God, <laughs> how to brush your you teeth. You know, and they're making, yeah, teeth. oh my God. Here's listicle yeah. of the best plastic gloves, and they love that. It's, 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 uh, it's perverse. I mean, it's scary. They love these little instructions. They're setting up their little desk. Well, you know they're making there's cup two different companies have now sent out ads about they're making face masks mm. you know i made that joke two weeks ago about designer face masks nike and nike's making them already yeah although they're, they're paying them to make them they may not even have to make them they just get a hundred million dollars there's no there's like a couple of small like hipster companies making like hipster face masks oh my you god know? Um, I want to make one that was like a pig. I want to make one that's like a pig. There's also a couple fashion houses that are. 
really. Are they animals? Yeah. Oh, that's what I want everyone to have a pig face. No one has. <laughs> well, you know, I'm still kind of hoping I we get masquerade balls back out of this. I'm going to wear a Richard Nixon face mask. That's what yeah, that's well. <laughs> Okay, listen, I'm going to, we're, I, this is really an unstable internet today, yeah. so this is going to be a shorter one than usual, because I, I don't want to burden Jack Lippman with, but we're going to be doing 15 minute um, little radio plays, podcast radio okay. plays soon. Um, Molly and Mike will be back. I'm going to invite more people. I hope we want to act in your radio play. podcast with Guy Zimmerman. Yeah, listen. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, we're going to need, I'll be in touch and we'll do a follow-up to this one that's a bit longer, I hope. Um, but this was cool. This was fun. And, um, you know, day whatever it is of the, of the global quarantine. So thank you, Michael, God. and thank Molly so much. And, that was fun. Um, this will be out. This will be out really soon, tonight or tomorrow. So, um, um, Thanks for having people us, should John. talk about it. So send people over SoundCloud and Aesthetic Resistance and listen to our podcast. Okay. Alrighty. Ciao. Thank you.